Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. has been described as incisive and compelling by the New York Times and playing with stylistic sensitivity and generous tonal nuance by the Chicago Tribune. Siwoo performs as soloist and chamber musician and as a multifaceted entrepreneur, co-founded the Vivo Music Festival in his hometown of Columbus, Ohio. Siwoo made his Carnegie Hall debut with the Juilliard Orchestra and has performed with orchestras all over the world, including the Staatsorchester Brandenburg Borgisches Frankfurt, Houston Symphony, KwaZulu Natal Philharmonic, in venues like Walt Disney Concert Hall, and many more. He has collaborated with world-renowned artists such as Itzhak Perlman, Jeremy Dank, Joyce DiDonato, Mitsuko Uchida, and string quartets such as the Guarneri, Juilliard, and Takach. He has been featured as a guest artist at international festivals, including those at Tivoli, Bergen, and Ensemble Ditto in South Korea, and has taken top prizes in many competitions, including Crescendo, Juilliard, and Young Arts. Siwoo, welcome to One Symphony today. I'm so excited to be speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. It sounds like you pretty much had no choice to become a musician. You started the violin at the age of two, and your parents were directing a music school. What do you remember most about these formative experiences? Gosh, yes, uh, you're right. It, it was a very natural process. I actually have a picture of me when I'm eight days old next to a full-size violin, and I'm far smaller than the violin. And our home was located within the school in South Korea. I don't remember specific memories, but I do generally remember how as soon as I could crawl or waddle around, that I was surrounded by kids who were there to practice, to get lessons, and playing the violin was a social thing for me, which was why I sort of gravitated towards the violin when I had the choice of playing piano, cello, or violin. Violin was the most portable. These days, I think I was so wise beyond my years to have thought of that. <laughs> Seeing all these giant instruments and people dealing with transporting them and whatnot. <laughs> 
Your mom said when you were at Juilliard as a kid, she said, one day you will go to school here. And then you walked into Carnegie Hall and she said, one day you will perform here. Can you talk about the mindset that your parents gave you growing up? Sure. My gosh. Uh, well, in 1994, I believe, Jennifer Coe was one of the winners of the Tchaikovsky competition. And it was a big deal, big deal in, in itself, but also for South Koreans, because she was a young South Korean lady who won this small country. So it was all over the news. And it turns out her teacher was Almita Vemos. So of course, there's Jennifer Coe's teacher, Almita Vemos, there's Sarah Chang's teacher, Dorothy DeLay at Juilliard. So my parents, when they saw that I had a knack for the for music and um, could see a future in me taking it seriously, they decided for that and a couple other reasons to immigrate to the U.S. And when we did so, I was five years old. And I think the second month when we were here in the U.S. in Michigan, my mother's new friend was uh, told her she was driving to New York. So get in the car. Let's uh, check it out. We went over to New York. And like you said, we visited Juilliard, visited Carnegie Hall. And she just instilled in me, like, you're going to go here, you're going you're gonna to play here. And with that, I think it's, it's a nice um, sentiment. But I think it was also, in retrospect, weighty uh, in that, like, she was committing to making that happen. The, my parents were in the U.S. on a mission to ensure that I have the greatest education opportunities possible. And my senior year at Juilliard undergrad, when I won the competition and I was the featured soloist at Carnegie Hall, and there was a big poster out there uh, saying uh, Siwoo Kim and the Juilliard Orchestra. My mother was like crying, of course, and <laughs> we took a picture in front of it and came full circle. Um, so they accomplished their mission. <laughs> and what was the piece that you won the competition on that you were soloing with the orchestra? And was that one of the first times you had soloed with the or with orchestra or had you done that before? So I had uh, you know, played concertos with other orchestras by that point. So at Juilliard, they choose one piece her like three instruments a year that's going to be the competition piece and usually the prize is to play in like Alice Tully Hall maybe once in a blue moon at David Geffen Hall but Carnegie Hall comes around maybe like I don't know how it is now but it used to come around like maybe like once every four years like that opportunity and the piece for that was Mozart's fifth violin concerto so as you can imagine every violinist has that in their repertoire and every violinist wants to have an opportunity to play in Carnegie Hall. So it was, I, I think there were like 80 something violinists from Juilliard who auditioned for it. And it was very exciting. Uh, they were among the competitors. I mean, the, my, the colleagues that I grew up with at school were so inspiring and many of them already had very impressive accolades, um, like a winner of a Queen Elizabeth competition or a Tchaikovsky competition. They're all there. So, you know, I, I thought I had no chance, but the nature with these competitions is really like how you play that day or the luck of the jury, I guess, you know. <laughs> so I, I was very grateful. I, I put in the work, but uh, definitely um, luck was in my favor that day. And I was very fortunate to have that opportunity and for my parents to be able to come and enjoy that.
Can you talk about your approach to something like the Mozart Fifth Violin Concerto or in particular to the style or maybe how you approach the cadenzas, for instance? So actually, that was my first time ever learning that concerto. One of my teachers was like, are you sure you want to do this competition? Because all the violinists probably all have this in their, you know, uh, they've bled, sweat and uh, teared on, <laughs> onto the instrument with this piece. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Mozart, I always had an affinity to um, the composer's works. I just love his works. He is probably one of my top three, if not number one favorite composer. And during my preparation for it, I made a point of going over to the Met and watching Mozart operas. I was listening to a lot of, I, I revere Mitsuko Uchida's interpretation of the works, listening to her interpretation, reading, and also studying what Robert Levin would talk about. And the cadenzas that I used for the competition were written by Robert Levin, who takes the focus away from the technical bravura and violinistic virtuosity and does it in a more stylistically correct way where it's more scalar, simple, and lets the concerto, lets Mozart's music shine. And Robert Levin also improvises his own cadenzas on the Beethoven piano concertos, for instance, or the Mozart concerto, for instance. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant minds. And it's funny, I just actually finished teaching a student of mine, the fifth Mozart violin concerto. And in terms of stylistic approach, I told him this week, why don't you go practice and keep in mind that the bow is a lot more important than the left hand in Mozart. Sure, you want it to be pristine and in tune because the music is so pure, but don't lose the integrity of the pitch by vibrating too much. Keep the vibrato controlled and focused, open up in uh, choice moments, keep the vitality and articulation and make sure the phrasing is very clear and each character is very clear because the thing with Mozart is that every eight, four bars, something different is happening. A new character is introduced and that's what makes it so difficult often because you want to be a character at its most potent and then all of a sudden put on a different hat and be another exuberant, different character. But yeah, I, that's sort of my general approach and Hope one day we can play a Mozart concerto together as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. Yeah, and, and, and I, I love hearing you say that because like this week I'm conducting Mozart 41 and it's the same way for me. Like I do a lot of new music and there's so many great composers. That's the great thing about what we do. But every time you come back to Mozart, it's just like, yeah. this is why we do music kind of thing. And, and I always talk about with the orchestra, how you have to find within yourself, like what all of this music means. Like, like you said, every four bar phrase or three bar phrase. Yeah. Can you talk about how you bring some of that stuff to life? Because Mozart is not, it's not like Mahler or even Brahms where there, there are significant instructions from the composer kind of talking about how to shape the phrase. Can you talk about your approach to just shaping a Mozart phrase in general? Sure. I think the nuances that one brings in to how you might shade a note or sculpt a note is very important. But I like to, first of all, just zoom out and just look at the work or the movement as a whole and sort of go from big to small. Leon Fleischer once said something that I will never forget. Um, where he said, you don't design a house around your favorite ashtray. <laughs> <laughs> you get the blueprint, you make the house first, and you decide where to put that ashtray. <laughs> and that's sort of how I go about it at first. Just go from macro scale, see what the 
what each section is doing. Oh, this is transition material. These are the two characters in the first and second theme. This is what's happening in development. What material is being worked out and what are the harmonies that we're shifting through? Where is the furthest point from it? When do we feel like we have made a triumphant welcome return? Back to the recap. Things like that at first. And then when I take a phrase or two at a time, I like to, first of all, sing through it because I mean, I think his music sounds so natural because a lot of it is very vocal and uh, idiomatic. And then I sort of go through and actually, you know, Mozart's music is so economical in context with the music of today and of the 19th century. But you could even go further in reducing the music into you know, uh, I, I sort of, I dabble in Shankarian. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> and once you do, when you kind of strip it away, strip all the embellishments away, and then you put yourself in the shoes of Mozart, or you dare to, and wonder why did he put this embellishment here going up here? Oh, is it making it more, he's trying to make it more exciting? Or right here, this trill means so much because he's marking the end of a giant section, so it should be as exuberant and bright as possible or, you know, things like that. And it becomes really fun. So big to small and try to make it natural to singing and try to understand why he wrote um, with certain compositional techniques for each section. Can you talk about your approach to maybe incorporating singing into your teaching or your, your studies over the course of your life? Because I find that a lot of instrumentalists don't always like there's a separation between a singer and an instrumentalist, for instance, and we don't always kind of cross over. But I find that those who, who incorporate singing into their music making as a, as a violinist or a flautist or whatever have so much deeper connection, you know, to the heart of the music. So I remember um, my formative years, my teacher was Almita Vemos. I consider her my second mother of sorts. Yeah, she. I've known her since I was like seven years old, and we still text each other um, intermittently. She would always sing along to me playing in lessons, and it was always very out of tune. <laughs> how she how she sang, not how I played. <laughs> no, but, Thanks for clarifying that. But, uh, yeah. but when she sang, it was done with so much feeling that you couldn't help but be, like it was so infectious, her passion for singing these phrases along with you, that you started immediately attributing it, playing into just expressing everything from the heart um, in the most natural way possible and with breaths between. And that's how she sort of taught me. And gosh, I mean, there are, of course, elements of, like the violin isn't always used as a vocal instrument. Like for instance, like Stravinsky sometimes treated like a percussion instrument. but Going back to Mrs. Vemos, I remember as a teenager, some other teacher at a competition or something at a comment said, said, like, phrasing could be better. So I went over to her. I asked, what does phrasing exactly mean? How would you define phrasing? And how old were you at this point? I think I was like 13. A good age to learn phrasing. I, yeah, just, just young enough where, like, she, I think she was, like, not going to overcomplicate my brain. So I thought it was, like, in retrospect, it was genius the way she taught it to me was, oh, don't overthink it. It just means like how you would talk to someone. You might ask a question, so your inflection is going to go up. You might answer or you might sob. You might, you know, like, so when she put it that way, playing the violin and seeing how these lines could be treated as just simply like human speech, it inspired me to use my bow in different ways to try to make the violin sound more 
human than the uh, than a wooden box. <laughs> You founded in 2015 the Vivo Music Festival, and Vivo means with life or lively. It's a musical instruction a lot of the times. Can you talk about how you discovered the path to musical entrepreneurship and your mission statement of building community through world-class chamber music and just the overall experience of uh, the past seven years of this festival? And I understand uh, you're kicking off the seventh season very soon here. Yes, thank you. So. I don't think as a child, I imagined that I would be running my own festival or founding it, <laughs> but it seemed very, very appropriate and clear at the time. My best friend, John Stoltz, and I decided to make it. He and I grew up in Columbus together. We knew each other since we were like 11 years old. He also studied with the Vemoses, and then he went off after studying with Kim Kashkashian. He came to New York to enroll in Carnegie Hall's Ensemble Connect, formerly known as ACGW program in which they teach you entrepreneurial skills and also teaching artistry next to performances in Carnegie Hall, uh, which is pretty awesome. But he was in the class before me. It's a two-year program. So that's what brought him back to New York. And we rekindled our friendship, um, saw each other all the time. And then he won a job in Ensemble Intercontemporain in Paris. So as he was about to depart for Europe, we talked about how we should work on a project together because we're really good friends and he's going to a different continent. Why don't we, you know, still 
keep our friendship strong. And, and then we just had sort of a casual afternoon on my apartment on 80th Street. I still remember it was kind of raining that day, but we were upstairs on my rooftop and having a little bit of whiskey. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but <laughs> and we were just chilling. People said worse on this show. Yeah. <laughs> we were just chilling out, a little bit of rain, some whiskey. It was really nice. We were just kind of brainstorming ideas. At first, we thought of a chamber group, but then we were th- saying, actually, how perfect would it be to have a summer festival, which we can both come back to since we have separate careers of our own and have it in Columbus, Ohio, where our parents still live and can enjoy the fruits of their effort, seeing us as, uh, you know, professional musicians, bringing our colleagues over. And of course, also, I, I think I had mentioned to you on a phone call before that the Columbus art scene could have, uh, it's vibrant and that it has a lot to offer, but there wasn't as much attention to it as I would hope in my hometown. So uh, what, that was one of our um, various reasons for wanting to start a festival in that we wanted to take what we learned and help build more audiences for classical music in our community. Community is a big word because we want all of our concerts to be as accessible as possible. They're all by pay what you want donation, basically, uh, for admission. This year, uh, every concert will be live streamed, just like sign up for the mailing list and we send you a link. And all of our rehearsals take place in a retirement community center where all the rehearsals are open rehearsals and the young artists like throughout the week interact with these senior residents. And each artist is assigned to do a lunch box, like B-A-C-H-S, which is a lunchtime solo informal set that each artist is assigned to do at a community center that we assigned them. So like, for instance, Goodwill or Dance for Parkinson's. There are various organizations that we've partnered up with, but essentially sending over world-class music to places where they might not have the chance to listen to it or have not given it the chance. And we found that most people have loved it and then come to our concerts as well. And hopefully by the end of the festival, they're inclined to check out the Columbus Symphony or the Chamber Music Columbus or Pro Musica Chamber Orchestra. So many factors that it checks. And with that comes a lot of work. But it's the seven years have really gone in a flash. It's expanded every year, but we're still learning every year. We make sure that we're never comfortable, that if we're comfortable and complacent, then we're doing something wrong. So each year doesn't ever get easier in some ways, but that's probably a good sign that we're still trying to push the envelope with programming, with where, what venues we go to and whatnot. You kind of have a philosophy, uh, and this can, I think, apply to others who are looking to start their own festivals or nonprofits. It starts with the mission and the vision and finding people who share that vision and then try, reflect and try again. And as you said, never get complacent, which I love. And then the music and the mission is always more important than the individual. Can you talk about how you kind of applied those principles over the years? Gosh, um, you know, I mean, that's a yes. And (laughs) And did you find any of those principles where you need to rethink those or reflect? (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, I it's a it's a principle. These are principles that uh, came from myself, but also my co-founders. So John Stoltz, my best friend, is a musician. But we also have another friend, Ted O'Young, who is not a musician, who took orchestra in high school but then went to NYU for something completely different, but loved classical music so much, he still wanted to be involved and help us found it. So each of us kind of come from different angles, but the reason I kind of struggled to initially just give you a right away uh, response is because it really comes from all three of us. 
and we keep each other in check. When one person wants to like do a certain way, we ask ourselves, like, is it in line with what Vivo is? And I think that's very important to have people who keep you in check because, you know, we're human and sometimes ego might get the better of you or something. Like a string quartet or something. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> played music all the way from Beethoven to John Zorn over the course of the of the years. Can you talk about the the composers or pieces that you're most excited about on this upcoming concert uh, uh, series? Gosh, yeah. I mean, well, the Bruch Scottish Fantasy that we're playing, I'm very excited about because I have never played that piece before. But it's a piece that I've always, always admired for how immediate for its immediacy, like in terms of emotions, it's so lush and straight to the heart. And it's the first piece that I, this is kind of embarrassing, but kind of like cried to listening to the recording of. What's embarrassing about that? That's what music's for. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In my, on my, like, so my parents used to drive me to my lesson to uh, Mrs. Vamos, who lived in Chicago. We were living in Columbus, Ohio. The drive was seven hours each way. So during that point, like during that time, one has a lot of time to listen to music. So I had a huge CD um, box. Like, thing and um i would always i would like turn on all these recordings and yeah that high fits recording i would listen to and that's i still remember that day like it was like sunset like we were in indiana somewhere a lot of cornfields and <laughs> i heard the slow movement and it's just like just like grabbed me and i was like i think i was like 13 14 around then too and just, I, I still remember that day and still listen to the recording and it gets better that recording <laughs> i am almost a little bit terrified to play this piece because that high fits recording is so iconic and it rings around in my <laughs> ears and i want to come approach it with a fresh interpretation but i can't help but just admire the great virtuoso high fits and other pieces gosh i mean there are so many things that i'm preparing right now actually <laughs> it's a lot it's a lot of music and it's very exciting once again to be working but i'm like wow that's what i used to do like <laughs> what is your routine you wake up you get coffee and then what does the rest of your day look like especially when you have all these projects coming up sure i mean you know like throughout the year it's all very different um that's 
I think, you know, I, the best way to like define my career as a freelancer and a, a artistic director of a festival, you know, I play a, a solo in chamber, but like each day, each week is very different. Often I'm at the mercy of the, the schedule of the place that hired me. But I think the loose sort of structure that I give for myself is that I at least um, devote like a few hours into looking over the pieces and putting in good fingerings and bowings, doing my score study, listening to recordings of it when I can't get my violin out and just like contemplating um, how I might approach a certain way of phrasing or whatnot. I actually suffered um, a bit of an injury in 2018 that I've had a lot of help uh, with throughout the last couple of years. But it was a humbling experience where I found that sometimes once I really start practicing and I'm given the ability to continually practice, I don't know when to stop. I just keep playing. And that's just from when I was a kid, I think, that habit. But as one grows older, we have to acknowledge and accept the fact that we're not that young anymore. <laughs> and there are smarter ways to uh, practice. I, I would say preparation for each piece that I'm going to be performing. A big percentage of what I invest in the work is, uh, is done mentally, where I think about various possibilities. And yeah, you can do a lot through just your mind. And then when you get to the violin, now that's your laboratory to try to execute all the ideas that you've had in your head. In terms of mental health, uh, can you talk about how you stay focused and how you kind of sustain yourself, you know, throughout various aspects of, of your career and life? Sure. I think first and foremost, I just always keep the focus on how I love music because career in music is hard. <laughs> it, the industry keeps changing and there's a lot of great players out there. There are a lot of, there are a few opportunities and there are some politics. There, there's just so many factors that are just beyond one's control. But what you do have control over is your playing and your love for the music. And then as one, you know, strives for a career in, because they want to have a career in passion, uh, live a life in music, I think you just have to, one has to just sort of sit down and balance out what are my needs and wants and what is in my control, what is not in my control. But at the core of it all, like keep the excitement, keep the love of music alive because that's what perseveres you through all the rejections and all the, all the hardships. But also, you know, that's, that's what propels you to all the triumphs uh, and whatnot and inspiration. That's beautiful. <laughs> Just back to the concerto, and we're playing the Brook, as you mentioned, the Scottish Fantasy with the Salina Symphony coming up. So I'm really excited about that. And it's so great to speak with you in the run-up to that. Can you just talk about, it's the fir your first time playing that, you're returning to the Salina community. Can you talk about your preparations? Could be musical, psychological, just kind of what, what you're thinking and, and what kind of things you're taking care of as you're learning a concerto and performing something with the first time with an orchestra on the concerto or a return to it? Sure. You know, uh, that's interesting that like, it's like, um, this is my first large scale concerto that I'm doing since COVID struck. I was fortunate to play some like Bach concerti. I played some Piazzolla Four Seasons, but they're always for like reduced capacity. This is the first time I'm playing full scale. Maybe we'll have like 70, 80 people up there, I'm guessing. <laughs> and it's a whole different ball game for the drama of 
how one should execute it and project also. I remember the hall vaguely. I remember sort of the acoustics of it, that it's not the most like super resonant. So that already is like giving me a little mental preparation for how I should warm up my sound, how I could add to the resonance. And in the past like year and a half, again, I was heavily, my playing was heavily focused on the intricacy of chamber music and unaccompanied repertoire. So I, I think because of that, I'm sort of seeing this piece through that lens, even though it is a giant, beautiful wash of sounds, I'm sort of distilling it and seeing, okay, who are the parts that I'm having this with? How could I match their timbre? Like there's a beautiful uh, flute and violin duet in the second movement. Or with the harp, I want to take this rubato, but the harp part, it's just like lends itself so well to being a little more this um, and I could wrap around. And so I, I'm approaching it more from like a chamber musician standpoint, I guess, with the idea that it's going to be a large scale piece in a big hall and I need to be as um, larger than life as possible. So you're obviously an amazing chamber musician, but also you've been concert master for some orchestras. Can you talk about how you apply chamber music principles or even soloistic principles to larger ensemble playing or leadership? Mm, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I guess like, yeah, each thing is a different animal, but I would say something that I do apply from chamber music is the rehearsal process. For about three or four summers, I, I went to the Marlboro Music Festival in Vermont, where one is rehearsing like four to eight hours a day with no weekend breaks. It's just for eight weeks, you're just rehearsing like up to eight hours a day and then you practice. <laughs> and each week you're like given a whole new set of works to rehearse. So you're just constantly learning new pieces and playing with different personnel. So that just going on to say that like that festival, as legendary as it is uh, for its performances, it's really about the rehearsals and about understanding the psychology of the colleagues that you're working with, understanding how to convey uh, musical ideas and share and come to a compromise or, um, or com complement. And I think, you know, I, I used to rehearse in a more abstract way. You know, I, I, my, my friend was like, oh, you, you say things like, oh, can it feel like butterflies? And I'm like, really? <laughs> like what? And so I hang on to sort of like that sort of, more abstract way of thinking about things, but in the conveying process, especially if you're working with a large ensemble, you can't say like, oh, can we feel like um, this is transcendental? Uh, <laughs> you know, um, It may help with some people, but everyone's gonna bring out the word transcendental in a different way. So I, when I'm working in like a concert master role, I'll turn to the section and say, this could be, a, uh, this could be denser. Can we use slower bow, maybe a little flatter hair? You know, I'll go, I'll sort of say the imagination, but support it with something that a common thread that everyone will understand.
You've recently premiered Samuel Adler's Violin Concerto. He's uh, such a kind of steward of American musical education and composition and orchestration. You know, I know his, his book of orchestration very well, and I've conducted his con- concertina for strings, one of them. Can you talk about working with him in that process of, of premiering that that concerto? Sure. Yeah. My gosh, I, that's a very special relationship because it just kind of happened out of nowhere. And we're still good friends, even in his age. I've lost count, to be honest. I, I, I think it's beyond 94 three or four now I don't know <laughs> but yeah he he and he just called me today <laughs> yeah I, I met him when I was in Oklahoma and he heard me play like the Shostakovich concerto and I I didn't know who he was at the time uh he simply I think he really enjoyed the performance and gave me his business card and it said Juilliard on it I was like oh I'm at Juilliard like, <laughs> like I'll see you there kind of thing and I remember I was in the school cafeteria just getting my like really boring sandwich and he uh he came over he like put his hand on my shoulder and he said i'm gonna write you a violin concerto and that was it <laughs> uh, and so, uh, I, so it was very wow it, it was um again like luck and chance uh, that there that was one of things that really worked in my favor i suppose like the stars aligned for it where he really enjoyed the performance he happened to be there and he decided that he would write a uh, concerto and he was inspired by the performance that uh, the, he really liked the way I played my cadenza apparently. So he wrote in similarly a cadenza that's quite difficult that goes straight into the last movement, much like the Shostakovich does. And nice. he, uh, we've talked to each other just over many years and, um, you know, I've recorded the work on Lynn records and played it several times. And then he's uh, wrote a few things for me for Vivo music festival as well. So we have a good, like, just like a real, real friendship across generations. And of course, like a mentor, he's so wise and sharp, extremely sharp, um, where I, I feel embarrassed that I'm in my 30s. <laughs> like, and he's like sharper than I am. Like, oh, are, you're using Google Maps. You should really use Waze. And, you know, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I guess uh, he, one of the maybe most striking things that he said to me about composition is, you know, he studied with. Copeland and Hindemith and some lessons with Boulanger also. One of the things that Hindemith told him when he was suffering from writer's block uh, was that, okay, Yasha Heifetz calls you, says, Sam, I have room for an encore tomorrow at my recital in Carnegie Hall. Could you write me a short work? What do you do? That's what Hindemith said to um, Adler. Wow. And Adler was like, I don't know. <laughs> and Hindemith wow. says, you picture, you picture Yasha Heifetz People are applauding. He's walking out the stage. He gives a bow. He holds his violin up and starts playing a work of yours. How do you want him to sound? How do you want your music to come through him? So, and he said that's a really that was a very good starting off point for him, and he still uses it to this day. So he said with the violin concerto that he um, wrote, um, he also thought of me. Um, you know, Siwu, twenty-one year old Siwu, um, <laughs> like kind of playing and like. Wow. You know, the each movement is like vigorous and like lively and it's very exuberant and virtuosic and um, fiery. It's on Spotify and stuff like that, I think. Um, it's like, um, but yeah, it's a, I thought I found that to be really cool. And also he just tells the best stories because he's lived such an incredible life. Thank you. 
And speaking of Heifetz, there is a recording of Heif, a video recording of Heifetz leading the Scottish fantasy from the as the conductor as well. If you've seen that, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Um, but also, what are your thoughts about the soloist as the conductor, you know, leading from from the violin as they used to do it? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I actually haven't seen that recording. Is it the one in color? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'll have to check it out again. I didn't realize that it was without a conductor because, like, for me, I'm like so married to that specific recording that he made. Um, I think it was it was with Boston, I believe. Anyway, um, but I'll have to check that out. I I, I wonder how, what it would be like to conduct and play this piece. I I don't think it would be something that I'd be comfortable doing because it's such a massive force behind you, and there are little rooms here and there for you know. Um, expressive timing and whatnot and uh, different sections that and it's already busy enough to play all these notes that i don't think i would want to have to (laughs) do giant scroll dancing while i'm doing it either Uh, (laughs) because i mean i I mean that's interesting that hype did that because i i as much as i like worship him as a violinist i didn't i don't often think of him as the most empathetic person when it comes to ensemble <laughs> he just kind of goes and everyone just kind of <laughs> comes with him you know <laughs> it's amazing because he doesn't i mean like I've, I've seen joshua bell do this with academy of saint martin the fields the scottish fantasy and he's he's leading them the entire time heifetz does not do much like he basically solos and he right with his eyes maybe if the orchestra can see that but they're I mean, yeah. he's giving little, you know, important starts or cues or whatever, but it's incredible at how little he actually gets away with doing. Right. I bet like the concert master's just sweating and everyone's just watching the concert master. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. With with Bach or Valdi, I think those could work. Smaller force, string family, everyone just kind of looks at your scroll, looks at your bow hand, and there we go. But I think with larger large scale works, I personally wouldn't be comfortable doing that. Maybe Brahms Concerto. It's a little, little class, classical. Yeah. yeah so yeah, <laughs> I'll record that. I'll make sure I, I, I hold you to that at some point. <laughs> well, Siwoo, it's been so awesome speaking with you and thank you for all the incredible music making and presenting classical music in these new and exciting ways that you're bringing to Columbus and around the world. And I'm looking forward to collaborating with you in the future. Thank you so much, Maestro. Looking forward to seeing you. Thank you for joining us on One Symphony, and thanks to Siwoo Kim for sharing his performances and insights. Thank you to all the incredible performers and record labels that made this episode possible, including Sony and Lin Records. Bach's second violin concerto was performed by Siwoo Kim and the New York Classical Players, conducted by Dong Min Kim. Mozart's fifth violin concerto was performed by Siwoo Kim and the Orchestre Royale de Chambre de Wallonie with Jean-Jacques Cantereau conducting. Brooke's Scottish Fantasy was performed by Yasha Heifetz in the Boston Symphony, conducted by Charles Munch. Samuel Adler's violin concerto was performed by Siwoo Kim and the Brandenburgisches Staatsorchester Frankfurt, conducted by Emily Freeman Brown. You can check out Siwoo's website and schedule online at siwookim.com and his upcoming music festival at vivofestival.org. 
You can always find more info at onesymphony.org, including a virtual tip jar if you'd like to lend your support. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music. <laughs>